good morning. My name is Ken Tu. Um, if you're visiting for the first time, uh, we're grateful you're here. I'm grateful that God has brought you here. I would, however, encourage you to consider coming back sometime when Justin's speaking. Um, I am not a speaker by trade. I do enjoy the opportunity to talk. Um, I'm definitely apprenticing uh, and, and had opportunities to talk a couple times. I also warn you, I am a software engineer by vocation. Um, unlike most software engineers, though, I do find that I kind of like people um, and actually talking to them. Uh, the good news is I'm much more comfortable uh, in this situation because you're not really encouraged to talk back. Um, but anyway, I do appreciate that new community practices what I, I tend to call a plurality of voices. So we serve a variety, uh, a diverse and creative God, and it seems fitting that his message would be shared and spread in a variety of ways. Uh, his word is much more than eloquent speech and polished delivery. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So while I do strive this morning to, to speak with polished delivery and eloquent um, conviction, um, I am thankful that when I fail to hit that standard, the good news of the kingdom of God is much, much bigger than me. And today we're going to be walking through 2 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we've been, as a church, going through 2 Samuel, uh, through the full book with the, with, the, with the subtitle of A Better King. And we find ourselves in chapter 20 this week, which for the most part is the last event of Samuel. Uh, what comes after this is kind of a bit of a recap um, some poems, and then kind of a, a little almost credit scene-like thing. Um, but before we dive into that, let, let me pray real quick. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We're thankful that uh, we can worship freely. We're thankful for um, the brothers and sisters that have you, you've placed in our lives to guide us, to counsel us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to exhort us, to push us, to challenge us. And I'm thankful for this group of people. Uh, please use this time um, to help us to better understand what it means uh, to live in a fallen world full of sin um, with our eyes towards the future. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I said, Second Samuel chapter 20 is pretty much the last event. There's four more chapters, but the, this is kind of the last historical event of Samuel. Um, this story, while it's called 2 Samuel, for the most part, 1 and 2 Samuel weren't really meant to be two books. It's really the original author ran out of space in the scroll number one and had to move on to scroll number two, for the most part, is how that plays out. So this story, this, this bit of history, starts all the way back in 1 Samuel when, when we see a woman named Hannah who's grieving because she's unable to have a child. Um, Hannah is actually Samuel's mother, so the joy that she's given when uh, she is able to conceive and have Samuel comes out as a song. And in this song, she makes three main points. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Despite human evil, God is at work. And one day, God will raise up a messianic king. And interestingly enough, I had already prepared, as, as I prepared, you know, I wrote, okay, recap Samuel. And then I went on and did the rest of what I'm going to talk about today. 
And then I cycled back to the recap, and it's there when I realized that in many ways, as I looked at chapter 20, my points are going to mirror Hannah's song from the beginning. Um, We'll see a lot of commonality in those. So as we walk through the recap, first, um, most of First Samuel is uh, seen as Israel's eyes as they they see Saul rise up as its first king. So initially, Israel is a tr- more of a tribe. They they have these judges that are leading them. As they become a nation, they want to have a king, and despite God's caution against it. The, the Jewish people get their king. And we, we read of Saul's rise as he begins to win battles, and he leads Israel well, and things are going well in the beginning of his reign. Um, but there comes this time when he blatantly disobeys God, and his downfall begins. And we see as his downfall begins, um, we see this shepherd boy named David starting to rise. And God is pointing to David one day becoming the new king of Israel. And much of Saul's downfall comes from his envy. His envy of David as he starts rising to be the next king. We see David defeat the giant Goliath. We see David starting winning battles as a general. And Saul is getting more and more jealous. Eventually to the point where he seeks to kill David. Instead of David seeking to kill Saul back, uh, he, he instead goes into hiding. And he trusts that God will resolve the issue and he waits on the Lord to to resolve the issue and we see first Samuel come to an end Saul has been killed in battle and second Samuel opens with David grieving over Saul's death and this is surprising when we see David grieving over the death of his enemy the nation of Israel sees a humble king starting to take power right So he rises the king, he unites the tribes, and David starts to um, uh, become the unifier. He conquers Jerusalem, he establishes a kingdom, he establishes this nation in a more stable way, and he is now their king. In the midst of this, we see lots of great successes and the blessings of God. And in fact, there's a, there's a promise God makes in chapter 7. We see it recorded and known as the Davidic covenant where God says, uh, from your royal line, a future king will come and he will establish an eternal kingdom. And this is going to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham that said the nations will be all blessed through one of your descendants. And right in the middle of all these successes, we have David and we see his downfall start almost immediately. He lusts after another man's wife, ultimately getting her pregnant, then kills her husband to cover it all up. But we know that God sees all. And through the prophet Nathan, David is confronted with this sin, and uh, to his credit, he repents. But while God can forgive him of his sin and does forgive him of his sin, the consequences of sin are still a part of David's future. His sons repeat his mistakes, and the tragedy in the situation continues to go up a notch. David's son Amnon sexually assaults his sister, and David does nothing. So Absalom, David's other son, takes matters into his own hands and has Amnon assassinated. Um, Absalom doesn't stop there and ultimately launches a rebellion against David. 
And this rebellion sends David right back into hiding again. We see that at some, uh, eventually the rebellion is squashed, and it is ended when, Dave, against David's orders, the commander of his army, Joab, kills Absalom. Um, we then see David go into the period of mourning that kind of mirrors his mourning over Saul. We see his enemy Saul has died, and he mourns and grieves. His enemy, Absalom, dies, and he mourns and grieves. Now, this is his son, obviously, but still, he mourns and grieves over an enemy death. However, this time, this grief rubs the Israelites wrong, where before they saw it as a humble leader. Now they see it as devaluing them. Would he have rather Absalom's rebellion continue and kill thousands of his own men? And so this question leads to turmoil within the nation. And in, in a political move, um, he replaces his commander of his army with the general of Absalom's army and hopes of quick, uh, hastening the reunification. So David appoints Amasa, Absalom's formal general, to be the commander of his army in place of Joab. And this brings us to chapter 20, where we are today. So let's take a look at this. Now there happened to be there a worthless man, ouch, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikra, Bikri, the a Benjamite. Uh, it says there happened to be there. There's, there's an argument going on between the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Israel. And in the midst of this argument, he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, Every man to his tent, so Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from Jordan to Jerusalem. So here we go again where David's decisions have led his nation into a period of turmoil, into a dark period. Another rebellion, this time Sheba leads it, is, has been started. And the question we might be asking is, is David now for a third time headed into hiding again? So let's kind of keep, keep pressing on and we'll see how David handles this. So the king said to Amasa, and remember this is, Amasa is now the general. He's replaced Joab. He was the formal general of Absalom. Now he's the general of David's army. He says to Amasa, call the men of Judah together with me within three days and from here and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. So we don't have any real explanation of why he delayed. Um, it could be he was sympathetic to the rebellion. Could be that he was resisting being led by David. Uh, maybe he's just incompetent, you know. Uh, we don't know. But anyway, he's late. He doesn't, he, he, the men seem to gather, but not so much uh, him. And David, so, so we move on. And David said to Abshai, who's now, Abishai, sorry. Abishai is Joab's brother. This is, this is, this is fun stuff. So Joab's brother is now, is still second in command. Joab was in command. Joab's brother second in command. Joab's gone. Amasa's put in. Joab's brother is still second in command. Amasa doesn't show up on time for the job. So David's now talking to Joab's brother, who is second in command. Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, 
lest he get himself to the fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, I should mention that I did mean to double-check pronunciations. These are not the uh, seminary-approved pronunciations. Um, I'll give it a shot. But anyway, so in our story, in, in, as we're recounting this, Amasa is late. So David goes to the uh, Joab's brother. Joab just got replaced, fired, whatever we call it, um, and says, okay, Amasa's not here, so you round up the men. You go and go after Sheba. So David's going to fight. Turns out, in this rebellion, he's going to fight, and he's going to fight quickly. He, he doesn't want Sheba to do more harm than Absalom would have. So Abishai, and it turns out Joab as well, is rounding up the men and heading out to Sheba, after Sheba. And then we have this quick scene that happens before they actually get to Sheba. It turns out Amasa does finally show up. So when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on its thigh. And, oh, by the way, I did mean to have a disclaimer in case you want to know this episode's rated V for violence. Um, uh, There is definitely a fair amount of violence in this this section coming up, so um, be aware. Um, You know, welcome to the New Testament. Old Testament, sorry. Welcome to the Old Testament. So, anyway, Amasa came to meet them, and now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Okay, so let's play this out. So Amasa shows up, the, the army's gathered, Joab's there, Abishai's there, and Joab goes up to meet Amasa. And, oh man, my, my sword just fell out of my belt. <sighs> Clumsy me, how did that happen? I, I don't even know. And so he kind of picks it up and he says, oh, hey, Amasa, how you doing, brother? Let's do the holy kiss thing. And he, you know, reaches this hand here to do, and then there with the stab and his intestines are on the ground so the last time i spoke um uh i don't know how many of you were there but i did this overview of god's story and and it's something that i used to do when i taught elementary kids and i introduced these doodles that i do when i tell the story so that help the kids remember uh the old testament and god's full plan for uh for us all um, it turns out um, there are no doodles for this chapter. Um, and in fact, you may find it surprising it was not any part of the elementary school curriculum. Um, but anyway, we, we'll, we'll dig into it and see what we come up with. Um, so there's no indication that David wanted Amasa killed. There's no indication that this is God's prescribed solution for the problem or that there was even a problem to begin with. But we do know that Joab has now taken matters into his own hands and murdered once again. He killed Absalom against David's orders, so there's every reason to believe that he's now done this uh, against David's orders, or at least in, in an absence of orders. And so as I, as I read through this 
chapter and as I pondered on, on what, what, was, what was it that we were to take from this, I, I asked a friend of mine who's, who's helped me a lot in past years in preparing to teach, and I said, I'm really struggling with, with you know, what do we got here? You know, what, 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 is, what is going on? And he said, well, you know, you maybe you should try to take some time and figure out why the original author would have, would have wanted it to be here. Why, why did he add it? And I went, yeah, that's the problem, right? Why is this here? You know, why are we looking at this again? You know, we've seen the cyclical nature of Israel, right, throughout history. Once again, we've got this story, and I used to talk about um, in the corporate world, there's a lot of just stuff that goes on. You know, you get these emails, and uh, they're a little bit, you know, things aren't great, but they're going to get better, and or we've got this new policy, and so some people read them and some people don't, and usually we've kind of coined this phrase whenever an email comes out, uh, it, more of the same, the MOTS, we call it MOTS. And so we kind of say, oh, did you, what was the email about? Nah, MOTS. Um, this is kind of a MOTS episode, right? This is more of the same. We've got a rebellion, we've got David making bad decisions, we've got uh, violence, we've got mess, and hopefully we're gonna see God resolve it in the end. And as I continued to kind of ponder over it, uh, what kind of came through it all was that um, in many ways, the Jewish nation, the Jewish nation at this point is a theocracy. So David is king of, so he, he leads the government, but he's also king and he leads the church. So in many ways, what we're seeing play out here is basically the Jewish church. And so as we look to find parallels for um, our times and for us, the point um, I'm going to pull out here today is that church life, and even maybe bigger, we'll just call it kingdom life, thanks to humans, is messy. It doesn't get much messier than intestines on the road. Um, I'm guessing that none of us have been exposed to this kind of um, situation before as part of church messiness. But I'm pretty sure many of us have wounds and scars from things that went on in our churches. And I'm trying not to, to, to get too dark or, and leaving out some details, but I can think of times in my life where church life was messy. Um, my wife and I, um, the week after we got married, uh, ended up having to leave the church that we were married in like the week before uh, in order to show some support in a division, um, to show some support to my new father-in-law. As one of the first elders of Apex Kettering, which was the planting church of New Community, um, we dealt with many issues where young, passionate believers would barrel through situations uh, without proper regard for others, and, and young leaders making mistakes that young humans make. Um, in honesty and transparency, um, I'm, still, I'm still personally dealing with some wounds from the end of my time there. We also have friends that we know that are going to be looking soon for their third church since we've known them, as the first two have seen heavy-handed leaders come into power. Stories of past sins covered up, current sins not dealt with, words spoken in anger, the spreading of lies and gossip are all too familiar for most of us. And that's the stuff that's easy to see that's messy. I know there's a lot of us that have served in situations as we try to play out the salt and light and impacting our world where we pour countless hours 
into someone only to watch them make the same mistakes over and over again? Are those people that we see come to every event but never really seem to grow deeper in their faith? Or the relationship that starts out as helping someone through a tough time only to find out that their whole life seems to be a tough time for them. So church life is messy. Kingdom life is messy. And we've seen the world is messy this week, certainly. Um, And we need to be okay with that. I'm not saying we throw up our hands in defeat and we just stand back and let it get messier. Um, As Paul preached, I'm not saying it's like, uh, let's all sin so that grace can be plentiful. I'm not pushing us to messiness. I am pushing us to expect messiness, to be ready for messiness, to understand that thanks to humans, kingdom life is messy. Every good cook has washed many dirty dishes. Every gardener or farmer that has had a good harvest has washed a lot of clothes and a lot of hands. If you find your, and if I would also mention, if you find yourself having to look for another church someday and think that you have found a church that is perfect, uh, run. Um, the only way a church and a church body can stay not messy or perfect is to either stay shallow and, and um, not deal with the hard stuff or actively hide the issues. Whitewashed tombs. The church is filled with sinners, but that's why we're here. We come because we know that we need a solution, that we need a fixer, we need a redeemer. As a prophet Isaiah wrote, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. We would love nothing more than to be able to show up at church and have a blueprint, much like they used when they designed this, this stand, this uh, lectern. They probably designed a nice blueprint. They followed a great plan, and they built this simple lectern. They engineered it. They put a lot of effort into that. And we would much like life to be engineered the same way. But I would remind us that we're not taking part in the building of a lectern. Much more what we are doing is creating abstract art. It's much, much messier and much, much more layers. In, uh, but the, the end result we will all find joy in. Because the good news is that God doesn't leave us in our messiness. Right? We can get glimpses even here on earth. We can get glimpses in our world of a better future. There is times when the messiness subsides and we get to see a bit of what restoration might look like. And let's see how that might play out in our story from today. So as Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maka and all the, Bic- the Bicrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maka. They cast up a mound against the city and stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to him. Let me speak to you. And he came near, and he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I'm listening. Then she said, 
They used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel, and so that settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. This is just not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Um, so yeah, no doodle. Um, I'm still actually trying to figure out how I end up volunteering for the disembowelment and dis decapitation sermon. Um, but anyway, if we don't focus on the fact that a head just got thrown over the wall, and instead what we see is a siege averted, a city not being demolished, a citizens shared, spared a bloody defeat, we start to get a glimpse of what restoration might look like. This story is one where cooler heads prevailed and stayed attached. Um, let's walk through it again. So we have Sheba, the troublemaker, as he's known in some translations. He's gathered the troops and he's headed to Abel. Um, this is where Joab and all of David's army meet up with him. And it says that, that Joab besieged the city and besieged Sheba. Um, this implies there's a multiple day event they're cut off from their supplies. They have no people going in or out of the city. And they enact this plan to both go over the wall by building this big mound and uh, uh, go through the wall by battering ram. And likely they, there's been several days, the stress level's going up in the city. And just as they're about to begin a full-scale invasion, a voice calls out. God uses wise counsel to change the messiness to less messiness. The voice says, we are faithful and peaceful, a mother in Israel, Lord's inheritance. Why are you going to destroy us? Job said, it's not me. It's because Sheba's in there, and he's raised his hand against King David. If you give us this man, we'll leave. And sure enough, next thing you know, a head comes flying over the wall, and Joab and his men declare victory, and they leave. Siege averted. So in the midst of human messiness and a human messy conflict god uses wise people to show a path to peace to a cleaner new day it isn't always perfect because in the end it still involves sinners but we do get a glimpse of what god what listening to god can do there have been times in my life um, where i have wanted ministries to fail because i had a disagreement with a leader and that's not God honoring. I ignored the wise counsel to forgive and move on. I ignored the wise counsel that confronted me that my disagreement was petty and I should seek to serve in spite of it. At that time, I didn't get to glimpse a better, cleaner path, but now I have learned valuable lessons from it and I get to replay those lessons and hopefully uh, use these as ways to exhort you to um, listen for wise counsel that will send you to a cleaner path. 
Our good news is that David is no longer king. Jesus is the head of the church now. And this, this is an improvement. This is a big improvement. But unfortunately, we still deal with the sin problem. The messiness is many times just less messy. Right? But the good news is that if we strive to deal with the messiness like Christ would, we can get a chance to see some clean, some joy, some blessings. The messiness of humans and sin is going to create sides to arguments, factions, us versus them. And I challenge you to always be looking for the path God might be providing to ease the tension, calm the storm, avert the siege. On um, one side note, also I did want to bring up, uh, kind of glossed over the fact that the wise counsel came from a wise woman in the story. It happens a lot in the Old Testament. Um, I didn't want to get caught up in gender in, in, at that time, but I do now. Um, we have many conversations in the Christian world about biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and I'm not getting into that right now. Uh, however, I do encourage men in leadership to make sure that you're diligent in seeking out wise counsel from women. I'm not saying that there's any kind of issue here or any kind of thing going on now or any kind of that I'm aware of, but too many times I've seen men take their role of leadership to mean only men have valuable discernment and wisdom. Moving on. Thanks to Jesus taking over the headship of the church, we can get a glimpse of restoration. So, church life, kingdom life, as I like to call it sometimes, is messy. Sin's all over the place. And the effects of sin cannot be completely removed. Jesus lived an example life and is the head of the church, so we have an opportunity to find moments of successes, blessings, cleanness. But this fallen world is messy. But the good news is, this isn't the end of the story. Justin said it last week, that for those of us who know and believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, this is as bad as it gets. Right? For those of us that believe and are changed, heaven awaits because Jesus is a better king. In fact, Jesus is a better everything. The, Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews walks through multiple Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than prophets. You see, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Not just prophets, but creator of the world. Um, he is better than angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. He is better than Moses, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is better. As we walk through Hebrews, we see Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the covenant. Jesus is a better tabernacle. He's a better temple. He's a better church. He's a better hope, and ultimately, he's a better sacrifice. And I encourage you to, to look through Hebrews and look through some of these. Um, Jesus is a better king. He's a better everything. Um, in our class, I got the opportunity to take the basics of preaching. Um, they did not teach the, the common phrase three points and a Keller quote, uh, but I'm going to go three points and a Keller quote today. Uh, so here's my Keller, Keller, Tim Keller quote. Uh, it's a long one, so hang on, but it's a good one. Um, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. 
Jesus is the true and better Abel, who through innocently, who though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void, not knowing whither he went, to create a new people of God. Jesus is a true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. And God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. And now we can say to God, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like just Jacob, receive only wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is a true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimately heaven, ultimate heavenly one, who didn't risk just his life, but gave his life to save his people. And Jesus is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out in the storm so that we could be brought in. So as David's reign comes to an end, we have seen a very messy side of kingdom life. But remember, David was the giant slayer. David was the man after God's own heart. We saw the blessings and successes too. And through all, but, and this ultimately is the genealogical line of Jesus. So through all the human messiness, God's plan for redemption still moves on. So while the storms of sin and the consequences of our sin and the sin of those around us are creating big, ugly messes, there are glimpses of hope and redemption. And ultimately, the comfort you seek is coming. God keeps his promises, and he has promised us a clean new world. Thank you, King Jesus, for that future. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for that future of a clean new world. Um, it's all too easy to look around and see the messiness in the world. Um, the church isn't spared messiness. Uh, we see messiness in our lives regularly. We're thankful for the moments you give us of, of hope, the, mess, the moments you give us of cleanness, of successes, of blessings. Uh, but Father, ultimately, uh, we pray that we would be living in a day that, with our eyes firmly fixed on the future hope of a, of a clean new world. Help us to be preparing for that. Help us to be... Um, escorting others to the place where they see their need to, to, to come to the place that they know and believe you and they have that eternal future for, uh, ahead of them as well. Um, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your love and grace. We're thankful that you will return 
pray that you hasten the day. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.